Our scripture reading this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist, and put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all of the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word. Our second scripture lesson this morning comes to us from the concluding chapter of the book of Joshua. Joshua has led the people out of the wilderness, across the Jordan, and into the conquest of the promised land. And at the beginning of the book, Joshua tells the people that they have to fight together as one. Because as each of the tribes conquers their own real estate, if this army was to peel off by the time you'd get to the farthest north outpost of the nation, you'd have one-twelfth the number of fighters, and so they would not be able to complete the conquest. In effect, in that incredible battlefield speech in the beginning of the book of Joshua, Joshua says that no one is home until everyone is home, and that the people had to fight as one in order for them to be able to claim all of the promise. We come now to the other end of that book, and Joshua also gives a concluding speech here in the 24th chapter. We're going to read verses 1 through 28 of Joshua, the 24th chapter. And it is Joshua's final speech to the people before they all return to their inheritance, to their homes, and begin to reap the fruits of having taken over the promised land. But Joshua has one more admonition to share with them. And he gives what is a rather lengthy speech, at least to our ears. In the ancient world, these things could go on for days. Joshua gathered together all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Long ago your ancestors, Terah and his sons, Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates and served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I gave to Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, and Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. 
And then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in its midst. And afterwards, I brought you out. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your ancestors with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did to Egypt. Afterwards, you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan, and they fought you, and I handed them over to you, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. The king, Balak, son of Zippor and Moab, set out to fight against Israel. He even invited Balaam, son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam, therefore he blessed you. So I rescued you out of his hand. When you went over the Jordan, came to Jericho, the citizens of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, and I handed them over to you. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove out before you the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you the land on which you had not labored, the towns which you have not built. You live in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and oliveyards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, revere the Lord and serve him sincerely and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, if you are unwilling, to serve the Lord. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods that your ancestors served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people then answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us out with our ancestors from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And who did these great signs in our sight? He protected us along the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. It was the Lord who drove out the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore we will serve the Lord for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He'll not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord and to serve only Him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you. Incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve and we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people on that day. He made as statutes and ordinances there at Shechem, he wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up under the oak in the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all these people, See, 
This stone will be a witness against us, for it has heard the words of the Lord that he spoke to us, and therefore it will witness against you if you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, each to their own inheritance. The word of the Lord. Pause with me to pray. Help us, O oh Lord, to discern the choices before us. What are we to choose this day? Amen. What does it mean for a people to change their gods? I don't think it's a concept that we, we have very often, but you see it throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, people changing their gods. We like this God for a little while, we look for this God for a little while. That's what Joshua is pointing out here. The people have a choice. They can choose the deities that are going to guide them. The people had the gods inflicted on them when they were in slavery in Egypt. They were subjugated under the power of the Egyptian gods, of the sun and of the dead. They woke up each and every morning with the oppressive demands of their overlords. Whatever knowledge they had from centuries ago about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel, that deity was lost to their current thoughts. Their daily drudgery affirmed the inferiority of whatever God was looking after them. Clearly the gods of the Egyptian masters were stronger. How could you conclude otherwise? They were slaves. Either their God had completely forgotten them, or their God was just flat out too weak to bring them redemption. Except, except, Moses stood in front of the burning bush, and the God of the enslaved people proclaimed they were not forgotten. God said to Moses, kick off your shoes. I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and with honey. And listen to the catalog of what God says to Moses there at the burning bush. I will give them the land that is the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now the cry of the Israelites have reached me, and I have seen the way Egyptians are oppressing them. And now, two generations later, Joshua stands on the very land that was promised back when Moses was in front of the bush. Of course, in the wilderness, they encountered many other gods, too. They were nomads. They were wandering followers of cattle and sheep and herds. The gods of the nomad are gods of wandering livestock, calf gods, gods of fertility and water and pasture land. These are the viable gods, suggests Joshua, gods you could cling to as they did in the wilderness and make your life as nomads coherent, but then again, you as a people were not called to be a wandering people of a calf god. You were called to be a people of a promised land. So there are other choices, said Joshua. You could serve the gods of the Amorites, the people who used to own the real estate on which you stand, the gods of rich soil, of plentiful rain, of exploding harvests, 
of lots of babies. These gods are home here. And for centuries they have been tethered to this soil on which you stand. The cycles of fecundity of all of the inhabitants here now that you occupy Canaan. You could take those gods. But this moment of conclusion, of conquest, moment of comfortable habitation, Joshua tells the people that like it or not, they have to make a choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Do we have a choice? Can people really choose their gods? Most definitely. I think we do it every day. At this moment, we wonder what gods do. Well, gods give us our priorities. They order our day. They reflect our values and the deepest desires of our hearts. The stories of our gods help explain the mysteries of life and they answer unanswerable questions. I suggest we choose our gods every day. I suggest to find that out, read your news feed, listen to your podcasts. How the completed narrative is driving almost a supernatural power to persuade and to modify. Here's a question of the current priests combing the sacred texts from which they believe they can predict the future. Here's one of them. How much cash can you pump into an economy before you have runaway inflation? Right? There are different religions at stake in how you answer that question. There are different sacred texts. There are different decisions you make that order your life based on whether you think that the economy can absorb an unlimited amount of cash or if it needs to be constrained so the prices don't go through the roof. Here's another one. Do we protect social violence? Do we protect social order through violence? Or can you protect social order through assistance? Is human nature such that at the end it has to be constrained by the threat of violence? Or is human nature capable of goodness? And so if you bring good social resources to the community, they will not misbehave. Those are two entirely different religions, I would suggest, competing for your loyalty today. Here's a big one. How much social freedom can we maintain while a demon virus floats in the air? I would say that one organizes a great deal of our thought. Or here's another one, am I just better off not knowing things? <laughs> when knowing things makes me feel so angry and helpless. Now you and I are far too sophisticated to suggest that these questions are their core religious ones. Yet when you listen to people argue, you watch battle lines form. It's interesting to me that the optics of an off-the-rails school board meeting about mask mandates has all the theater and passion of a 19th century heresy trial. At some moment in the middle of those meetings, you're expecting someone to jump up and say, she's a witch, right? She turned me into a newt. I got better. Now, I'm not suggesting that monetary policy or police budgets or public health or social guidance 
are merely religious difference, but I am saying the ways in which these disagreements are playing out have taken on the energy of holy wars. Holy wars. Now that's, that's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. Warfare against cosmic powers and present darkness and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We are at battle, says the Apostle Paul. The struggle of immense proportion. And if we are indeed warriors, he writes, this battlefield of competing deities, we're going to need some armor. And this is where the pacified side of me just flinches. Why do we talk about the whole armor of God? It's a metaphor that makes me chafe. My desire to proclaim the Prince of Peace who blesses peacemakers is a little at odds with a metaphor that has to do with going into battle. I have no need to reinsert onward Christian soldiers into the canon of respectable Christian lyrics, no matter how fun it is to sing, because it is kind of fun to sing. Except, let's stay with Paul for a moment and see what he is really pointing to for us to be battle ready. It all begins with wrapping our belly in truth. Put on the belt of truth is the first thing Paul writes. Better hold your tunic in place and keep your pants up. Before you go out and do anything else, you have to consider what is true. Until you've discerned truth, not formed an opinion, but truly wrestled with what is right and what is wrong, with what is honest and what is lie, don't even bother with the rest of the uniform. You're not done yet. You don't begin until you've wrestled with truth. If you think putting on the belt of truth is hard, then consider protecting your chest with righteousness. A breastplate, a thoraca, it's called in Greek, a thoraca, from which we get the word thorax. Not a chest puffed up with self-righteousness, but a thorax protected with God's value for us. Next one is where the metaphor takes a big turn for me makes a little more sense. It's what Paul considers should cover our feet. As for shoes, writes Paul, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. <laughs> Suddenly this is an entirely different kind of warrior metaphor. Consider where your shoes are taking you. Are you prating out of the encampment with the soul marching order to make hurt or to make peace? Because if stepping off to hurt someone is your driving force, that, my friends, is not a Christian soldier. Go back to the tent, take off your stomping shoes, and find out whatever it takes you to walk for making peace. Perhaps to adjust the belt of truth, or look again at your thoracic cover of righteousness from God. What you're wearing today, don't go out unless your feet are pointed squarely towards peace. The rest of the battle gear then makes sense. Your only shield, faith. Your helmet, protecting your head and your thoughts, is your salvation. You think like one who is guided by God. You think like one who knows that it is God's love that has saved you. And then your only attack weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which Paul says is the Word of God. The word he uses for sword here is the short sword, the little dagger. The image is only for close hand-to-hand -hand combat when you know your opponent well and you are with them closely, not the indiscriminate 
waving of the sword of Bible verses that you're hurling into a crowd, but the close heart-piercing word that as the author of the Hebrews says, the Word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, any dagger. It pierces, dividing the soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That is your only aggressive weapon. It is the Word of God that you pierce someone to help them understand their heart's desire. So now we're suited up. There's your uniform. Belted with truth, protected by God's righteousness, pointed in the direction of peace, defending the faith, mentally organized by salvation, and only piercing with the words that God would have you say. Choose you this day whom you will serve, bellows Joshua in the valley of Shechem. To my mind, what happens next makes Joshua a true leader. To my mind, Joshua speaks power when he says, but as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, Yahweh. Joshua doesn't take a pull before he determines his course of action. He, he doesn't modify his commitment based on the sway and cheering of the crowd. He doesn't check his portfolio to see if his stocks are going to fall, if based on his speech uh, there's a shareholder abandonment of his portfolio. He doesn't even rile up his base so it looks like he's going to win. Joshua merely declares his own position, his own priority, and he leaves the people to choose their own gods. And the choice is ours. Today. Tomorrow day after that every day we awaken we choose our armor and we choose our god choose wisely mm -hmm.